Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Chinese Premier Li Qiang has called for integrated development and security cooperation among Lantang Mekong countries. China's EV maker BYD is set to build new electric car factory in Hungary, making it the first Chinese company to make cars in Europe. And we continue our year-end review series to look at the rising voices of the Global South in 2023. Chinese Premier Li Qiang has called on Lantang Mekong countries to enhance integrated development and security governance cooperation. Li made the remarks at the fourth Lantang Mekong Cooperation Leaders Meeting held via video link. He co-chaired the meeting with Myanmar leader Ming Aung Lai. Leaders of Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam also attended the video conference. Li announced China's decision to put in place a loan specially designated for the common development of Lantang Mekong countries. He called for more efforts to promote interconnectivity, foster green cooperation and management of water resources, crack down on crimes and deepen cultural exchanges. For more, we are now joined on the line by Professor Song Qingren from the School of Asian Studies at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Professor Song, thanks for joining us. Okay. Uh- so, Hello. in what ways do you think um, the Lantang Mekong cooperation has enhanced regional connectivity and development among participating countries? Uh, before the establishment of the Lantang Mekong cooperation mechanism, uh, the level of connectivity between the six countries in the Lantang Mekong basin was relatively low, and some countries had relatively low levels of economic and social development. Uh, in the context of the global slow economic growth, strengthening cooperation in multiple fields among regional countries uh, plays an important role in promoting regional economic development. Moreover, uh, strengthening the connectivity between two uh, countries within this region and facilitating the flow of people and logistics between regional countries is also a great benefit to the development of the regional economy. Uh, the Lantang Mekong Corporation has been officially launched over uh, for last for over seven years. Over pa- the past seven years, six countries have worked, worked together to actively promote connectivity between regional countries, creating a four-in-one regional connectivity pattern of land, sea, and sky, and internet. Uh, more cross, uh, cross-border roads and railways are being are being built between regional countries. And after the pandemic has eased, there has been a significant increase in flights between regional countries. Uh, the the facilitation of customs clearance between regional countries is also uh, accelerating, greatly uh, facilitating the exchange of personnel and goals. For example, after the completion of the railway between China and Laos, it greatly uh, facilitates personnel and trade exchanges between China, Laos, Thailand, and other regional countries. The road cooperation between China and Cambodia has achieved fruitful results. And the railway cooperation between China and Thailand is also continuously advancing. Uh, China and Vietnam, as well as China and Myanmar, also accelerated cooperation in cross-border railway and road construction. Overall, over the past seven years, 
the net connectivity between the six countries has been uh, continuously advancing with both hard and soft connectivity advancing uh, simultaneously. The important progress in regional connectivity has added an accelerator to sub-regional economic and trade exchanges. In 2022, the annual trade volume between China and Mekong River countries reached uh, 416.7 billion dollars, doubling from seven years ago. Transnational investment by enterprises from various countries is becoming more active, uh, more active, injecting impetus and adding vitality to local economic development. Moreover, this uh, leadership meeting uh, also emphasized that the six countries will continue to strengthen connectivity cooperation and promote regional economic development in the future. I'm quite optimistic about the prospects of regional economic development. Mm -hmm. Well, Li Chang announced China's decision to put in place a loan specially designated for the common development of Lantang Mekong countries. How significant is this loan program and how can it effectively contribute to the common development within the region? Uh, the economic and the social development level of some countries in the Lankan, in the Lankan Mekong River Basin is still relatively low, uh, whether it is agricultural or industrial development. And some countries face the problem of insufficient funds and the finance, uh, financing uh, when they want to develop, develop their economy. China is the largest economy in the region and a responsible major uh, uh, big country. Uh, therefore, China is willing to strengthen financial support for regional connectivity, uh, sustainable development, and capacity cooperation through cooperation mechanisms with financial institutions in the Lantau Mekong region, as well as special loans for Lantau Mekong international capacity and equipment manufacturing cooperation. This will contribute to the industrial development of some countries in the Lantau Mekong Real Basin, promote the economic and social development of some countries, improve the level of regional economic and social development, increase job opportunities in this region, uh, improve the income level of more people, and also help reduce poverty in some countries in the region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the joint de- declaration proposes building a regional innovation corridor. So. What specific sectors or areas of innovation do you think would be most relevant for the Lantau Mekong countries to collaborate on? Uh, we know that the level of scientific and technolog- technological development in some countries in the Lantau Mekong rural basin is relatively low, and some countries' innovation capabilities are insufficient. Uh, however, in order to, for regional countries to achieve sustainable and uh, quick economic development and upgrade their industrial structure, it is uh, very necessary to enhance their innovation capabilities. Therefore, building the long-term medical science and technology innovation cooperation framework, establishing a vibrant science and technology innovation ecosystem, promoting research and development application, commercial, commercial uh, commercialization, Logistics and technology transfer jointly agreed important areas and exploring the establishment of innovation corridors will greatly support the industrial development of uh, this region, especially uh, to the border areas 
economic zones and or industrial cities. Uh, in the future, six countries can strengthen cooperation and innovation in the following areas. Uh, uh, for example, strengthen cooperation in the field of intellectual property, promote practical cooperation projects in capacity building, pilot cultivation, and intellectual property application, and jointly promote innovative development in the non-Mekong countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and notably, Premier Li mentioned building a community of shared future among the Lansang Mekong countries. Can you elaborate what this concept means and what specific values and goals would underpin this shared future? Mm-hmm. Well, the six countries in the Lansang Mekong River Basin, uh, I think uh, we should continue to deepen neighborly friendship and practical cooperation, promote economic and social development of uh, coastal countries, uh, our, uh, our six countries, uh, enhance the well-being of the people in our six countries, build a more resilient Latin American economic, economic, uh, economic development field, jointly build a peaceful, tranquil, prosperous, beautiful, and friendly Latin American region, and take new steps towards building a closer Latin American community with a shared future for peace and prosperity. The six countries need to gather uh, more consensus on cooperation, enhance the awareness of our community with a shared future, strengthen all-round cooperation, tighten the bonds of common interest between the six countries, enhance people-to-people communication, tighten the emotional bonds between the people of the six countries, and jointly address the impact of uh, adverse factors such as global climate change and global slow economic growth so as to achieve common, sustainable development and enable the people of the six countries to enjoy a better life. Yeah, and some critics have expressed concerns about China potentially dominating the Lantang-Mekong cooperation and imposing its own vision of shared future. So in your opinion, how can the initiative be structured to ensure inclusivity and respect for the perspectives of all member countries? Uh, we know that the Latin-American cooperation base, uh, uh, mechanism uh, bases on consensus, uh, equal treatment, mutual respect, mutual consultation, and coordination, uh, voluntary participation, uh, and the joint construction and sharing. We adhere to multilateralism, defend the international system with the United Nations, as it is called, and the international order based on the United Nations, United Nations Charter and international law in accordance with the domestic laws and regulations of the rules of each country in this region. When China and the other five countries engage in cooperation, uh, we first engage in equal consultations with uh, among the six countries, and all cooperation is, cre- is carried out only after the relevant countries have agreed. China has not imposed its ideology on the other five countries in this region. As the largest economy in the region, in this region and a, a responsible a big country in this region, uh, China has long provided a, a large amount of public goals for the development of the region. For example, China has provided a large amount of investment, development assistance, scholarships, and helped these five countries, the other five countries, and build roads and bridges, helping them develop faster. 
Moreover, China and five other countries in this region have agreed to ex- explore the establishment of a dialogue or development partners with the Lancome-Mekong cooperation uh, on the basis of consensus among the six countries, inviting countries recognized by the six countries and the regional or international organizations to party- participate in the Lancome-Mekong cooperation in a appropriate manner. This mm-hmm. is also an important uh, manifestation uh, of the inclusiveness of the Lancome-Mekong cooperation mechanism. Okay, and and let's look at the management of water resources. Uh, because given concerns about upstream downstream relationship, how can China and other Lantang Mekong countries ensure equitable and sustainable water resource management? Uh, the six countries in the Lantang Mekong River Basin share the, this important regional river, which has long uh, uh, benefited the six countries and nearly one point seven billion people in this basin. In addition, current global climate change has also led to frequent extreme weather events such as high temp- temperatures in the Lanta Mekong River Basin, frequent droughts and floods, and complex impacts on river water resources. Therefore, protecting and managing the water resources of this river well, making good use of the river's water resources, is crucial for the survival and development of the six countries and a large number of people in this region. The six countries in the basin should enhance their awareness of cooperation, enhance mutual trust, mobilize more funds, invest more manpower, material resources, and financial resources, increase technical support, strengthen hydrological information exchange, promote the improvement uh, of pollution in the Lanta Mekong River, enhance environmental protection, develop water resources reasonably, enhance water resource management capabilities, explore the establishment of an international cooperation mechanism for disaster management in this region, and achieve green and sustainable development in the Lantang Mekong River Basin. Yeah, thank you, Professor Sun Qingren from the School of Asian Studies at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Coming up, China's EV maker BYD is set to build a factory in Hungary, making it the first Chinese company to make cars in Europe. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Chinese EV maker BYD says it will build a new electric car factory in Hungary, making it the first Chinese company to make cars in Europe. The new factory will be in the city of Szeged in the south of the country and is expected to create thousands of jobs. BYD already has an electric bus manufacturing plant in another city of Hungary. The company now has more than 30 industrial parks and production bases around the world, with factories in the U.S., Brazil, Japan and India. For more on this and the development of China's EV industry, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Zhou. BYD says it's now going to make cars in Europe. So why do they choose Hungary to build the EV car factory in Europe? And what's their consideration, do you think? I think that Hungary is a very important 
Middle European country, and it has many advantages, many not so expensive laborers, and also adjacent to the main market of Europe. While they still have、uh, many, I mean, friendly、uh, relations with China, especially in some of the international affairs. So I believe that BYD choose these countries just、uh, trying to establish the the first sites to get.、Uh, Nearer to the main market of Europe, and they are really want to take advantage of the policies of European Union, and also benefit from the very promising market there. Hmm. And the project will be one of the largest investments in Hungarian economic history. How will it benefit Hungarian EV industry and its economy? You know, the traditionally、uh, Hungarian is not our center in the Europe. To producing the cars, so for the most of the, the you know the traditional ways,、uh, Germany is、uh, one of the centers. But Hungary is also a very promising market. So I, I would say that、uh, you know for the EVs and other、uh, auto industries, it's a really important industry for the country to benefit from by the technology transfer, by the improvement of the skills of the peoples, and also、uh, benefit by the cooperation on, on the supply chains. So I would say that Hungarian will benefit a lot by the development. I I, I mean it's not only the BYD itself; it also are very important、uh, factor to attract many the the outer parts suppliers, the technology and research centers. We can find that recently Hungarian has、uh, gathered many research centers from different、uh, multinational companies. So this cooperation will be strengthened, and the position of Hungarian will be improved in the Europe to benefit not only for that sector but also for the much wider areas of sectors.、Mm. And BYD wants a big chunk of the European market. What advantage do they have on the European market? Do you think, and what challenges do they face there? Yeah, we know that BYD is not started from the the automobiles.、Uh, so it started from the batteries. So I think that one of the most important advantages of them is the battery supplies. So they、uh, it's account for a really a big part or a lion's share of the the EV cost for the, for the for the consumers to pay. So、uh, for the BYD, I think that they really want to grasp the opportunities in Europe because they are transferring from the traditional、uh, vehicles to the EVs. And there are many potential markets, as we can find from the Germany exhibitions, that a lot of BYD cars has attracted many consumers. So they have a very nice design, very affordable prices for the consumers. So I think that is their you know advantages. I I do believe that it is one of their abilities to attract consumers to buy their models. Hmm. So BYD now has more than thirty industrial parks and production bases around the world. So how have they made it, and how did the Chinese car maker manage to get ahead in the EV era? Do you think? Yeah, in recent years, we see that、uh, the EV makers are spreading around the world. It's a diversification, and also it's a Process of internationalization. I I would say that is a very important way because we are seeing that not only the Europe but also United States have reached the concept of so-called de-risking. 
Well, that has provided many of the pressures to the EV producers because they want our stable and sustainable supply chains. But if there are so many interference from the other countries, especially from the governments, I don't think that is easy way. So they built the industrial parks around the world to try to guarantee the supplies of uh, very important materials and parts for them. Mm. And that is also a very important factors that we can find that uh, all the industrial parks are supporting each other by the technology, by the design, even by the ideas. It is really helpful. And talking about the EV industry, we have to mention the technologies and products in the uh, upstream, middle stream, and downstream of this uh, industry. And there is estimation saying that Chinese enterprises' uh, dominance in producing car batteries led by CATL and BYD means China will likely account for more than two-thirds of the global battery production by the year 2030. So how realistic is it? Yeah, in my understanding, the demand decides uh, the capacities of uh, providing or supply because they, these companies are really seeing the potential of the development for the EV cars. So they produce the batteries to, to support that. Well, the batteries are not only used for the EV cars, but also for the energy storage. Like we are seeing there are more solar panels and wind turbines. So it's a much more possibilities for increasing market in the future. I, I don't think that uh, it is also about the share of Chinese, so-called Chinese producers of the batteries, because when they invested in other countries, they are their countries uh, companies. So they are not representing of a Chinese government's uh, attitudes to, to that supply chain. It is a kind of factors that are cooperating between different countries, like some countries are real good at uh, the lithium and, and they have uh, many of the ores, but other countries are in the processing, uh, you know, their part. So the cooperating, uh, like you mentioned, the upstream, the, the middle stream, and also the downstreams are really diversifies the risks and trying to provide their better experiences for the consumers. That is very important for the new industry and the new sectors to develop. Mm. And the EU has launched an anti-subsidies probe into the EV manufactured in China. So why is this move? And are China's electric vehicles threatening the European auto industry as the European Commission claimed? Or could the EU's investigation harm the European consumers? Yeah, it happened again, you know, in the first 10 years of the 21st century, you have launched the anti-subsidy investigation on China's solar panels. It's really impacted China a lot. Well, it also have many impacts on the European consumers because they suffer from the higher prices and the slow process of improvement. So uh, when it happened again in the EV sectors, I, I would say that it's a definitely not a good idea because it will pose many uncertainty in the sectors. For the companies, they do not have uh, enough intentions and uh, you know the uh, the efforts to to try to do some innovation they are trying to have a lot of um, information to have to give this information to the to the eu governments it's a really kind of uh, things about the business privacies. And I do believe that will slow down the process for EU to transfer from the traditional energy to the new energies. Mm. And if the EU imposed tariffs, how could this impact the global EV industry and the market? Yeah, the tariff is a kind of cost. We can take it as uh, one important part when the 
company want to sell the cars or products to another country. The tariffs are changing the balance of the decisions like to uh, to export to one country instead of another. They have to look at the prices and the consumers are only the takers of the prices. If there are more tariffs added to the cars, uh, maybe they have to pay more. So it's a procedure that uh, the, the sellers of the cars will not take too much for the tariffs, they just change the direction of the export. That's Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, speaking with Zhao Yang. This is World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. We continue our year-end review series reflecting on the defining moments that have shaped the global landscape in 2023. The year 2023 has heard the rising voices of the Global South, with the BRICS expanding from 5 to 11 non-Western powers and the African Union joining the G20 group. China has also taken a more proactive role on the global stage, from brokering a peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran to mediating in the Russia-Ukraine and Israel-Hamas conflicts. The third Belt and Road Forum drew representatives from more than 150 countries and 40 international organizations, most of them from developing markets. In 2023, the Global South isn't just present at the table, they are setting the menu. For more on the growing influence of the Global South, we are joined by Jia Daojung, Professor of International Political Economy at the School of International Studies at Peking University, and Zun Ahmed Khan, Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization and Visiting Scholar with Belt and Road Strategy Institute at Tsinghua University. So, Zun, to start with you, do you see the voices and interests of the Global South gaining increased recognition and influence on the global stage over the past year. Firstly, thank you so much for having me on the program and also especially on this topic. You know, uh, for the last uh, few years, I mean, uh, increasingly, the this century has been about an emergence of the global south, uh, confidence in the global south, uh, individual countries and regions coming together, forming multilateral platforms towards regional connectivity. And I would say, just as your introduction mentioned, the importance of the global south not only as an object or as uh, as uh, as regions where you know global powers take interest but also as those that are setting the agenda that are improving their own regional consensuses on how they want regional development cooperation and also their role in shaping global gover- governance priorities is becoming center stage and I think 2023 in particular, when we look at China's own foreign policy, China's uh, initiatives, and as you also mentioned, I mean, the Global Development Initiative, the Global Civilizations and the Global Security Initiative, where uh, the Saudi Iran detente, something that was previously inconceivable, has been possible. So China is playing a very important role in not only enabling these new institutions and these new platforms that are helping Global South countries voice their concerns and become more center stage to the process of uh, formulating policies that affect them, but also helping other parts of the world realize the importance of these regions. Developing countries, the Global South regions, including the African continent, Latin America, parts of Asia, that were previously seen as relatively 
just underdeveloped or in need of affirmative action are now seen as opportunities. So we do see a lot of new developments, exciting developments, and, and a new wave of enthusiasm among uh, governments and individuals from these regions stepping up and voicing what they feel is important and uh, their voices being critical to how we move forward. Mm-hmm. Professor Zhao, what factors do you believe have contributed to the growing importance or influence of the Global South in international affairs? Well, in addition to what our colleague uh, Tsinghua just said, I think she did a good summary of the notion of the Global South rather than as an object as viewed or thrown or defined by the so-called <coughs> Global North, she did. Uh, uh, the Global South now is also becoming um, self-identification, or you can call it agency, by countries that identify um, themselves as part, being part of the Global South. What factors have contributed to this? I would think it's in a different way, uh, different from in the past. Uh, countries are now coming together without um, demanding a systematic change as they did back in the 50s and 60s or 70s. But now they are basically saying, like it or not, the uh, views or uh, preferences on the part of the Global South have to be taken seriously. In other words, the fundamental fact, I would think, is the change in what you know, political scientists call a balance of power. Uh, there's a lot of salience in that change. Okay. Um, and and Zun, let's look at um, the expansion of the BRICS, because um, as we mentioned earlier, the BRICS summit in Johannesburg was in the spotlight uh, because the group expanded from 5 to 11 countries, with more countries waiting to join. So what do you think is behind the enthusiasm for this particular block? You know, there are so many, uh, so many layers to BRICS. I I personally completely agree with what Professor Joe said about uh, balance of power. And this, firstly, you know, the sentiment that is fueling these initiatives, these multilateral efforts has existed, in particular in the first waves of decolonization, 1950s, 60s, when we saw the Bandong spirit, the Bandong movement, where there was a collective recognition of the importance of respecting the agency of these newly independent nations. And now, you know, BRICS is an excellent, a very important example of how that sentiment is now becoming a reality. So for BRICS, you know, BRICS's expansion, we at CCG, Center for China and Globalization, we also hosted uh, an event dedicated to what are the key takeaways. And we were very lucky to have uh, the BRICS Sherpa from South Africa, Neil Suklal, present. And I mentioned that because, you know, there are many questions regarding what is the what is the purpose? What is the attractiveness of BRICS? A lot of observers, especially in the traditional global north, uh, those powers, those perspectives that sometimes see these regions as reactive or see them as a periphery, uh, cannot understand that for BRICS, it isn't a question of just reacting, but also of creating spaces for solutions, for uh, identifying, you know, how their collective challenges, be their developmental challenges, be there this feeling or this uh, this collective understanding that 
existing institutions may not consider their priorities or may not include them in the process of you know decision making which is where the the BRICS bank is is also a very important factor and i think in general it is this idea that collectively if more countries i mean they they join such platforms BRICS as an example they're able to find solutions there exists a vacuum in the ability in the extent to which uh, uh, it, traditional powers traditionally those who were able to uh, respond to the changing realities are the growing developmental needs the growing infrastructure needs the growing uh, needs for connectivity in these regions are not stepping up they're not able to fulfill those needs and it is high time that countries in these regions, uh, the new members as well as the existing members of BRICS, they are able to um, create solutions between each other and expand regional connectivity. So, for example, for Pakistan, which is hopefully going to be a member of BRICS next year, it is a big development for a country to see that how we can cooperate with other uh, global powers that have similar concerns, that have similar ambitions and aspirations that want to be able to develop in a more pragmatic sense. So there are multiple layers. BRICS is a multifaceted organization. BRICS is trying to address some of the some of the critical challenges that these countries face, for example, even dependency on the dollar. So uh, there was even interesting analyses coming out after the BRICS summit that there was no, no conversation about de-dollarization. But the point is that they're not going to, the purpose is not to de-dollarize or to, to, you know, question or, um, provoke anything from the existing uh, institutions, but actually just to find solutions that they can by collaboration, by developing consensus, by seeing what each member country can offer. And that is the attractiveness. It is the creativity. It is it is a sense of inclusivity. It is a, it is a, a platform that sees beyond center and periphery. So any country, whether it's it's an African country, whether it's from the Middle East, from Asia, from Latin America, it has an equal ability to contribute to the platform. It is not a recipient or an observer. Each country has agency. And in, in a sense, such platforms are empowering for as step one. And then, you know, whatever practical challenges that countries are facing, they're able to come together and seek solutions, to find solutions that work for the member countries. So this is why we see an, an increase interest in BRICS as a platform and also others, for instance, the SCO. Yeah, and Professor Jazz, since just now you mentioned uh, the balance of power, you know, some are suggesting that maybe we should abandon the usage of terms like global south or global north, because if when we talk about global south versus north, uh, we are still look at, looking at uh, international relations um, through the balance of power, and maybe we ignore the potential for cooperation between different countries and what do you think well um, balance of power doesn't necessarily have to be negative how well it, the, what, when I use the term I use the uh, had the more of a, a descriptive dimension mm -hmm. of that but when you use the term balance of power to express an aspiration or to express a preference for, let's say, continuing on with the in gap or the inequality among, in terms of treatment among nation states. That's a different level of analysis. It, I wouldn't think uh, mentioning balance of power would, uh, uh, would negate the space for cooperation 
Now, cooperation in and of itself can be a source of uh, friction um, or at least controversy because cooperation is someone has to be, one party has to be initiating that, and then when a target party does not react in the way that's expected, then that party, the second party, is viewed as non-cooperative. But the notion of the global south instead is to say, so what? I have my preference too. You keep your reservations and let's engage with each other on a more equal footing. But that's not a denial of the value of continued conversation towards a an outcome that can be acceptable and conducted, an outcome that emerges out of interaction on a more equal footing. Yeah, and, and then Dr. Jia, how do you look at um, the African Union's inclusion in the G20? Uh, does uh, and, and what does it mean for the representation and interests uh, of developing countries? And do you think that will help promote uh, the interactions between Global South and Global North? Well, the, the work of including uh, African the African Union in the G20, the discussion has been going on for a number of years. Is in many ways a positive step. Uh, that this materialized uh, this year's uh, G20 summit. Um, now, the African Union really has work cut out for itself in terms of bringing substance to its representation at the G20. What I really mean is it will have to um, shape uh, a cross-section of uh, interest um, bring that table among some 53 or 54 different African nation states. That's no easy task. Now, they, uh, it would be tragic for the AU to be an addition to the G20, but that would really uh, result in a nearly, merely one more chair at the table. What really matters is the substance, and uh, for that, the AU has to uh, talk to its member states and try to gain, the, let's say, the highest common denominator, if not uh, uh, among the diverse pursuits of interest in that in that continent. Okay, and, and Zun, uh, let's look at the Belt and Road because it's been a decade since China launched the initiative. Um, how do you view its impact, particularly in its engagements with Global South nations? Um, you know, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, I mean, coming from a Global South country and uh, based on also, I, I think, the perceptions of um, many scholars or people engaged um, in this initiative, it's really been... Um, an opportunity for developing countries to think about, first of all, their dom- domestic priorities, their domestic agendas, uh, to learn from China's experiences, and to think about um, their progress, you know, in a less linear way, in a way that is um, that is receptive to the growing needs of these regions. Uh, obviously, the first phase was about hard infrastructure. We saw. Uh, major investments, uh, government-to-government interactions that have enabled, created 
a basic premise to uh, do value addition beyond that, energy and transportation infrastructure projects, which have been largely very successful in terms of uh, enabling connectivity within and beyond borders. We have also seen an encouragement of a phase two, which is about uh, business to business collaborations, technology transfer, and also increased investments, um, improving the capacity of these countries to uh, manufacture more, you know, engage a younger population. And over the years, I mean, we also saw, as I previously mentioned, uh, the global development, global security and global civilizations initiatives, which have incorporated a socioeconomic dimension. So today, you know, 10 years down the road, we are having very sophisticated discussions and collaborations on technology transfer, on technolo technology, uh, tech um, uh, education, on vocational education, on agriculture modernization, on rural revitalization, on more holistic, domestically determined approaches, which are receptive to the ground reality. A lot of regions are now including uh, poverty alleviation in a more creative way in their domestic uh, agendas and have, uh, have collaboration with Chinese uh, provinces or cities that are enabling them to reach those goals. So long story short, I mean, obviously, uh, the success, the long term success of the Belt and Road Initiative will be will take time. These are very, um, you know, regional or domestically um, uh, focused uh, developments that that are going to be unique to every country or region that's being engaged. But what is happening in this last decade, what is what the BRI is spearheading is a new approach to development that is sensitive to the socioeconomic realities that is uh, not imposing. It is it is different from, say, what people thought would be the Marshall Plan, where China has this, where the major country that is initiating has the key solutions. But it's actually collaboration of the domestic or regional priorities and China's capacities. And then we evolve, we are receptive to what is working and what needs to be done more of and what needs to be done less of. So I think the BRI has, again, uh, brought the Global South and developing countries center stage. We also see that now, you know, over the past few years, uh, initiatives from the from Europe, from the United States, from Global North that are focused on the on infrastructure development are coming out at times as a reaction to the BRI, which shows that this is something that is changing the conversation on global development and the relevance of major powers, the degree to which and the effectiveness with which uh, developed countries can engage the major parts of the world, the 70-80% of the world will determine the long-term success and relevance of powers. So we see successes, we see uh, enhanced conversations on a lot of aspects of development that Global South countries had been demanding. We also see new networks that are enabling conversations between these regions that didn't exist before. So the Belt and Road Forum is an example, but also some other examples are the, um, we had CDAC, the conversation on dialogue of Asian civilizations was an excellent uh, initiative. We have also um, the South-South Human Rights Forum, where we saw a multifaceted approach on what are the practical challenges that countries that are developing are facing and how they actually uh, have a lot more in common than they previously fathomed and what can be solutions. So I think as we see the multilateralization of the BRI, as we see uh, new networks of cooperation, there is progress. And this is this is a positive boost for the overall 
increased respect for the agency of developing regions. Mm-hmm. Well, Professor Jia, how do you think the rise of the Global South will impact the established norms and institutions of international relations? And do you think this will lead to a more multipolar world order? Well, I would think the uh, framing of the question, the especially the use of such words as the rise of the Global South, or established norms and institutions of world governance or international relations, that reflects a very obvious and uh, in many ways uh, questionable bias on the part of, let's say, the global north. Uh, life changes uh, as history, uh, as time goes by. You know, uh, Even when people look at the... Uh, history of their own society, evolution of their own societies, you have change of fortunes. So uh, the what the phenomenon that leads to the popularity of the term global south shouldn't be seen as challenging. And who is it to say that the global south can't be part of establishing the norms if, you know, in international relations. If it's international, that means it comes from both ends. Uh, of the interaction. Um, it's, uh, it, but does the quote-unquote uh, rise of the global south challenge or overthrow the institutions of international, of international relations? No. But they, uh, it would be unwise and in reality whatever effort is among, among, among it in the name of the global south won't, will meet strong resistance, both from within and from without, if it turns out to be so that revolutionary. Um, so I, I think that's uh, how I would take, take it. But the, let's be aware of the biases built in the prevalent discussion when it comes to the so-called global norms, um, established norms, or the rise of the global south. Okay, I see your point. Uh, but Professor Jia, you know, some Western critics, um, they say that with China taking a prominent role in the Global South, there is a re- risk that these countries becoming what they call China's geopolitical backyard. So how do you perceive these arguments? And, and should countries be worried about a potential shift from uh, perhaps a U.S. hegemony to Chinese hegemony in the Global South? Well, those, uh, again, I would think... Um, Framing of China take, um, turning the quote-unquote global south into its geopolitical backyard is way too simplistic. Um, it, look, like so many other countries, China faced development challenges in terms of growth, in terms of maintaining growth. And as some scholars would say, even in what you normally call global south, you have can observe pockets of their society that resemble the level of social and economic development, that resemble the kind of structural challenges in terms of poverty or urban decay that's in the so-called global south. Um, I wouldn't think that either the U.S. or China, or for that matter, or a third country, uh, can turn anybody else into its quote-unquote backyard. If you turn backyard, then you have to weed it 
hey, you have to plant flowers, you have mm-hmm. to take care of it. And if anything, you know, the U.S. is now generally agreed, even with the shift from the Trump to the Biden administration, to be more U.S. focused. The, the Trump, the Biden administration does not use the word, the wording America first as, um, as let's say, uh, proudly as the Trump team did, but there's no... Um, there's no doubt that the U.S. is putting its own development ahead of that, or considering development in other parts of the world. Likewise, China is going through some of the economic headwinds, and it's not. It doesn't really have that capacity, and it would be very unwise for anybody, either here in China or outside, to say, well, there was, there is that so-called backyard just for you to go and argue that. As we know, China has brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. How do you think um, they can they reveal, um, you know, China's perspective on global governance? Well, first and foremost, Iran and Saudi Arabia chose to Im- invite China to be the quote-unquote broker. It's, you know, the, those two governments had been negotiating with each other at various states. So they came to Beijing, and of course, China also happily helped to make that possible to celebrate a conclusion. So, in other words, this is not just going back to what you said earlier on about people who would say, well, you have a geopolitical backyard. They, what China did in relation to the diplomatic reconciliation between Tehran and uh, Riyadh was that China acted at the request rather than offering a, a, uh, a, let's say, template for those two feelings. And that is a major difference in terms of what you said, a diplomatic endeavor. And as a matter of fact, China didn't just help representatives of Iran and Saudi Arabia signed an agreement in Beijing early in the spring and in the months ever since China has been talking to both sides and urged them to live up to their own promises and that's an active offer uh, uh, of uh, let's say uh, uh, mediation and uh, that's what a responsible mediator should do rather than just having a ceremony signed and then this does say the Chinese approach is based on um, having a basis for acting, you know, rather than you know imposing a preference, and then it works to, let's say, what we would say, add. Um, uh, it works to add color to a. Uh, uh, I'm trying trying to think about an analogy rather than uh, I, mm-hmm. I I think you get what I mean. Rather yes. than adding fuel to the fire, it tries to add uh, sugar to the cake. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, very interesting point.、Uh, and、uh, unfortunately, we are running out of time. So thank you, Jia Daojun, Professor of International Political Economy at the School of International Studies at Peking University, and Zun Ahmed Khan, Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization and Visiting Scholar with Belt and Road Strategy Institute at Tsinghua University. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again, or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World Today." I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.